Right eye dominant. 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 This is the Right Eye Dominant Podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Right Eye Dominant Podcast. I am your host, Nick Toro Jr. When I started this podcast about a year and a half ago, I really didn't know how it would grow, um, what the content would be beyond just a few ideas that I had of things I wanted to talk about. And I realized at one point that I would start including interviews as part of the regular content for the podcast. I have reached out to numerous photographers and curators, and I am really happy and and appreciative of the fact that many have said yes and have joined me on this show. Many, many more have said no, but that's okay. You roll the dice and sometimes they come out in your favor. Today's episode is a photographer who I've really admired for a long time, his work Uh, deeply connects with me. Uh, I also uh, made an assumption that he'd be very difficult to get uh, a hold of and to have him on the podcast. But lo and behold, things happen in your favor sometimes. So today's episode is an interview with a photographer named Michael Ackerman. Uh, Michael might not be a a household name, nor... uh, particularly familiar to a broad photographic audience, but those of us in the know uh, who like adventurous photography certainly are interested in a different view of the world and also uh, the world of photo book publishing probably have come across the work of Michael Ackerman. Uh, I originally wanted to do this episode around a book of his called End Time City which focuses on Benares, India. But the conversation expands into all sorts of different areas. And I think that Michael's thoughtfulness really comes through in this conversation. And we go in deep into the motivations of why we create artwork and what it means to us to be in that process. I think you'll really enjoy this conversation. I really did. So without further ado, here's my conversation with photographer Michael Ackerman. Uh, Welcome to the Right Eye Dominant Podcast, Michael Ackerman. Thank you, Nick. Yeah, I'm really happy you asked me to do this. Great. um, I appreciate uh, uh, not only your time, but your patience as we were emailing back and forth. Um, I'm glad it worked out. My first podcast. All right. Great. Well, I'm I'm honored then. I think maybe just for the listeners, can you tell me a little bit about your yourself and how you ended up working in photography? Yeah. Um, when I was 17, uh, I, I want to sing Frank Sinatra. When I was 17. It was... <laughs> <laughs> I took a photography class. 
uh, when I was 17 and a senior in high school, there was a obligatory semester of high school that you were obliged to take a course that was not academic, but practical. Mm-hmm. And there was only three to choose from. And the, the, the two other ones sounded really hard, like carpentry and electronics, like actually useful things. <laughs> so I chose photography. And the least useful of the three. <laughs> yeah, because uh, it just sounded so easy. Yeah. Because it's, you know, it's not like now when, where everybody is constantly a photographer, but it seemed like that to me, like, cause my parents, my parents, uh, in our life, a camera seemed always present and a lot of family photos. So it just sounded like, like, um, easy class. I think that's the only reason I remember taking it. I, I was, and I, and I was really bad because it was, um, it was basic black and white analog photography in 1985. And everybody started the same and learned the same thing, like a standard camera and, and then how to develop film, how to expose film, how to make context sheets, how to make a test print and all the basic steps technical steps, but I was really not good at it. And I, it, it was beyond my competence, even that, even that like simple thing. I clearly remember being humiliated by the teacher and Mm. being made fun of and being like being him. I remember this moment when he told the rest of the class uh, that if you, you know, if you want to know how not to do things, look at me. I, I did it wrong. Even then from the beginning, was this in uh, New York? This was, yeah, in high school in in, in New York. Uh, I didn't think much about it, but it was kind of nice to, um, to like, hide behind the camera and have excuse to look at the cool kids, mm-hmm. you know? Because I, I think I was, I was probably pretty nerdy and um, unsophisticated, and I went to a pretty sophisticated high school. And with with the cool kids, rich kids, um, mm. some very smart kids, and I was not none of those. And what school? What school is that? It's called Stuyvesant High School. Okay, but I I remember this little thrill of looking through the camera and looking at people I admired, and I think that yeah, something was planted because then after I graduated and I went to university, but for no good reason, really. Like I, I had no idea what I wanted to do and I had no particular interest in life or career. Um, I, I grew up, to, I just I grew up on sports and television. And mm. but so I was 18 and like, you know, you, you go to college if you're middle class and uh, my parents were separated and my mom's husband, new, new husband, had a career and uh, um, advised me to go into study economics because you could make money that way. Mm-hmm. But So I, I, I signed up for that, but I really had no idea. But during the first, my first days on campus, I saw a flyer advertising student-run photography organization. And I went to the interest meeting and then got like, I went to the one-on-one interview 
afterwards. And um, I presented like a bunch of out of focus pictures I took of from of my, you know, high school classmates and some like really bad pictures of, of tennis players at the U.S. Open. Very blurry and like um, with, you know, from the top of the stadium. And because of my, I think because of my like very naive enthusiasm, the chief of the club uh, accepted me. I was one of the few, you know, like maybe 40 people showed up to the interest meeting and then they chose four or five new members. And they chose me because of that, of like something about my attitude. Mm. He, he told me later that they all laughed at my pictures when I left the interview, but they really liked my spirit. And he, that, that, that person who was like the chief photographer of the organization at the time, who was like, you know, 20. And for me, 18, I was like 18 going on 12. Mm. I was really naive, really inexperienced, mm. no life experience. He was extremely like, to me, was somebody like old and ex like a real person. <laughs> and he kind of became my first mentor. He told me what kind of camera I should have and uh, how I, you know, it's, stu it's, it's stupid that I'm signed up for economics. I should do this and this and this. And it kind of, he, he kind of lit a fire or maybe st stoked the fire a lot. Mm -hmm. And so for, until he graduated, he was like, my, I didn't, I didn't, I did have, I did have two semesters of photography class. Uh, but it wasn't so influential as these like, you know, 19 and 20 year olds around me teaching me all the basics again. And, 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 and by that time I, I, I was 18 and I was going to classes without much passion or enthusiasm, but I was immediately obsessed by photography and that's all I wanted to do for a while. And they also, they had, this club was really unique because there was no adult supervision and they made the pictures for all of the university's needs. Uh, the newspaper, the university newspaper, all the graduates would, would receive a, a yearbook, but it was a heavily photographic yearbook. And every year, one member of, of the, 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 the place was called university photo service. And every year, a senior would be chosen to be the editor of that book. It basically ate up your life. And I, as soon as I heard about it, that was my goal. I really wanted to be chosen in four years time to be the editor of that book. And it, it, I was, and hmm. it ended up being my first book. And I took a year off from school to, to just photograph the life of the university and make, and make that book. And that was really my my big education, I think. That year where it was, you weren't taking any classes at that time. You were just focusing. I wasn't taking any classes and I just photographed every aspect of school life, you know, mm. even things that totally bore me to photograph, like sitting in a classroom or sports or, you know, it was at that time, I was so new at it that it was exciting. Mm-hmm. But most exciting was like getting close to people, doing portraits of people who intrigued me or going out at night and going to the clubs, going to the bars. So yeah, it was, it was like a completely powerful, practical education. It was completely untheoretical. I never had a real 
photography education. And then I didn't graduate. I just couldn't go back to school after like going in so deep with photography. So I came home oh, and my friend who, who got, who chose me for that club, he, when he graduated, he came to New York and he started this like um, free alternative news weekly. Hmm. So, and then he asked me to be its photographer uh, and it lived a few years. It was called New York Perspectives at the very beginning of the 90s. So I, I dropped out of school and I went to live with my mom in Queens and I set up a photo studio in my old room and I earned a little money making actors headshots, hmm. which I, I advertised for the like, you know, art schools and acting schools. And I, I had, had a flyer and I hung it up and I got some work because I was like the cheapest headshot <laughs> photographer in New York mm-hmm. and people would come out to Queens to be photographed by me. And I worked for my friend's newspaper and I started working, immersing myself in New York and like graduate school would be just going around New York Mm -hmm. as a young photographer and exploring the city and exploring photography. So that's what I, so a couple of things I find interesting about your, your journey, because I think in a lot of ways, we're very similar. Clearly, we were, I mean, we were, we're, we're we've got to be very close to the same age. Uh, I graduated high school in 1984. Um, yeah, I mean, 85. Yeah. And so even what you said about, well, you're, you're kind of aimless at like graduating high school, uh, but you're going to college because you're middle class, you're going to go to college, right? And that was the same situation for myself. Yeah, I ended up going to a state college in New Jersey. The the only thing that I was marginally interested in was photography. And that's how I ended up. I was just a photo major there because I had really nothing else. I, it's funny that I think it's also a generational thing because yeah. like, I don't think my parents pushed me. I mean, they, I think there was the expectation to go to college, but there was no real direct involvement in my decision-making. I mean, I think about my nieces and and nephew and the way parents are so involved with their kids' lives today. It was so different for us. Yeah, it really was. But my my father, because of the long World War II story and uh, grew, grew up in concentration camps and wow. immigrate, immigrated to Israel when he was 15. He never finished high school. He had a different perspective mm-hmm. than your normal middle-class perspective. Like, sure. I would imagine know, so. He, he, went from, he went from World War II to Israeli army. And, and yeah, so he didn't have an education, but he, he was really what is you know, called self-made. And, and also, I think he felt lucky to be alive, and he was. So I, I, re- I remember, well, I remember two very important moments. One was after a few months of being a freshman in school. And like I made hundreds of eight by tens of every boring picture that there is to take and brought them home full of excitement and pride. You know, hundreds of black and white, really deadly, boring, <laughs> shitty photographs. And on, on on Christmas break or, yeah, or the first school holiday, I came home with them and um, 
I, I opened the box and showed my parents. My father was so bored. He walked away after like the third photo. But my mom went through every single one praising my genius. And, <laughs> and I, I'm still grateful for her. You know, there, there was such crap. And mm. it's like worse, worse than anything any student has ever shown me. And every time I see somebody who's like a beginner and in a workshop or a teaching situation, I tell them what they're doing is so much better than what I did as a beginner. Mm. And it's true. But like four and a half years later, when I came home and telling the, told them I, I'm dropping out and I told them my plan for this, you know, work for my friend's newspaper and do this headshots. And my mom was really scared that I, that I'm making a huge mistake. Mm-hmm. And my, my my father said he knows what he's doing. He didn't. He never got what I was doing, but or he never you know connected with what I was doing. Whereas my mom does, but he knew that I was doing what I really needed to be doing. And I think I was very lucky to have this. He, he you know he told me that in life you have to do what you believe in and not not um, what other people expect of you. That that brings something up for me, actually. So you said that in that first class, when you showed your work and the teacher was just humiliated you and said, don't, if you want to see what not to do, look at Michael's photos. And then it was more, this was more technical because I, I was like pathologically incapable of following instructions. Sure. Yeah. But, but, but my point though, is regardless of whether it's technical or the subject matter or whatever. Um, but then you also, you brought those blurry out of focus photos went up to the photo club in, in Albany, like those two situations for me personally, and maybe other people maybe would have discarded, like what you would have even stopped trying, but it didn't dissuade you. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't remember ever having, and I, I don't remember in those days having being. I don't think I was possible to dissuade me. It just was. It was obvious that that's what I was doing. Mm. It was. I wasn't questioning it at all. It was just so, so much. There was so much pleasure and so much need to do it, and um, I was so hooked. Like just run around all day, take pictures of, of my, you know school community or whatever of rock bands at the club and and then go at night to the dark room and develop them and and make the context sheets and my best friend at the time told me that I have this character that like if you tell me I can't do something then I won't then I will do it but I don't think that's true actually Hmm. I think I'm a contrarian but I don't think I'm like especially motivated by discouragement or by trying to prove somebody wrong because if somebody told me, you know, don't even think about it. You'll never learn how to play the violin. I'll, I'll agree with them. And I'll, <laughs> I, I won't try to learn how to play the violin. Okay. But photography was different. Let me ask you um, in the, those initial, when you were first getting into it, um, it sounds like the way you were describing it, using the camera as an opportunity to enter worlds or interact with people maybe that you weren't comfortable getting into uh, otherwise. 
but then you're also describing sort of the process of capturing something on film and then spending time in the dark room. What, what was it about photography initially? Was it the more social interpersonal aspects of it? Or was the, you know, like we say, the magic of capturing an image and then bringing it to life through development and printing? I mean, what was it that first, what sparked inside of you? I don't think I can honestly say what I felt at the time was the motivation or the spark, but I think if I think back about on it, I think that it's the those two things for somebody very shy to be able to get close to people and have contact with something very important that I was never able to do before, to have a real human connection. And then the magic of images, the transformation of reality, and also the preservation of, of, of the ephemeral, you know, every photo is a photo of something that doesn't exist anymore. So I, but there's no way I was conscious of that at 18 or 21. It's something that you don't know, but it is driving you. I mean, I became conscious of that later. And then there's just the, um, the being given a language that I, I was always, so I came to America at age seven. You know, I learned English pretty quickly, but for sure I've always felt uh, uncomfortable with the language. I felt, I've always felt inadequate. So I think I was a good, I, it was good for me to have a language I can make my own, you know, that I could learn from, that I can define it. Yeah. Yeah. I understand that. What was your, when, before you spoke English, what was your native tongue? Hebrew. Okay. I mean, I, I was born in Israel. And Tel Aviv, was, correct? Yeah. I grew up speaking Hebrew. And then when we, when we moved in my house, there was a, you know, transition to English over some years. So I've forgotten most of it. Let's get back into the photo then, the photo discussion. So you're in the city, you're in New York. You're a- actively shooting, printing, working for the newspaper. Like you said, that's your sort of graduate studies of, of just being a photographer in New York at that time. So where, do, where, do, where does your life go from there? I never had like any uh, ideas about what I should be doing, but I was just following what I was fascinated by in New York. It started out with like after university, it started out that like uh, I, I wanted to like just get myself into places that intrigued me, places that I wanted to explore. And at that time, there were places where a lot of people came together and very often weren't wearing much. Mm. Like nightclubs, often gay, but not only drag e nightclubs and like i'd go out i'd leave my mom's place in queens at like 11 or 12 and go photograph all night in a club and then take the very early like early subway out to the beach which i also love to photograph on the beach Mm. because there was a lot of people a lot of bodies a lot of i think as a young photographer i was very um, inspired by kinetic energy, mm-hmm. by action, 
by immersing myself into craziness and into wildness and like and into communities that one of the, I think one of um, maybe important feature of my growing up and my family life is how I don't know if it's asocial or antisocial my parents were mm-hmm. like they they didn't really have friends and they didn't feel like part of anything so we grew up that way I had my friends and I've since since high school I I've, I've had very very important and powerful friendships but I think photography one of the things that was driving me was a need to belong to something or I didn't really fool myself into thinking that I belonged to this or that community that I was photographing but there was there was like this feeling of being not accepted but like entering something like mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. there was an illusion to it you know I could I could for a while feel like I was part of something, but without any wishing, without wishing to be part of something really. But like, I think it was that combination of like entering for me, maybe it was like that people together doing something, whether it was dancing or whether it was praying or whether it was, you know, playing on the beach had a mystery that I didn't, um, that my life didn't have. That was the um, attraction, and then I could I could enter that and explore that mystery, and not only that, but come out of it with some, you know, with with like express it in a way, in my way, express mm-hmm. my version of that amazingness, you know. Because yeah. one thing, like my 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 interests have changed over the years, and I really don't like crowds at all now. Uh, and I really much prefer to be alone or one on one on one with somebody, both in, in socially and in in photography. I think that one one thing that hasn't changed is that I only I only photograph things or people that I really like or I think I like. Mm-hmm. Maybe I don't know them, but that that like um, like or love. Well, let me ask you then, because the using photography as an entry into a world or an environment or a community that, um, you know, you can use the camera. It's in some ways, it's your ticket to the it's your ticket to the event, so to speak. In some yeah, but ways. you know that the event and that hasn't changed also the event or the the person or the bird or the tree it's all also a ticket into coming into contact with something you know it's a pretext of c- coming into contact with something very powerful about life that i haven't found other ways of coming into contact with there's a spiritual component to what you just described uh, yeah, of course. Uh, everything interesting is under the surface or beyond the surface for me. Mm-hmm. So it is very spiritual. It's uh, it's what is I think 
what is always filling me with the need to, to photograph is yeah the soul of something and it, and that is if you are if you are um connected with that it doesn't have to be in a any you know any spiritually significant place it's 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 what just what you what has a has a strong hold on you at that moment in your life so let's talk a little bit about the work in your book, End Time City. You have the new one? Yes. Yeah. The because? Because this one. Yeah. Because the uh, damn you, all your work is so hard to find and so expensive if it's uh, even out there in the world. So, yeah, I was grateful that there was a reissue of it. Yeah. I'm sorry. Uh, it's not my fault, and I don't benefit from it. <laughs> I have two copies of of the original End Time City, hmm. and I certainly don't get anything from its sales. It's, um, but so yeah, like the first one came up. The the first one, it was 1993. I was 25 and still living with my mom, never having traveled, and. I saw something on CNN, this crazy thing in the Philippines that during Holy Week um, on Good Friday, certain religious devotees get nailed to crosses. And I, I, I was into photographing religious communities at the time in New York. That to me was a kind of like, a wow, that was on another level. They actually got nailed to crosses. Yeah, and it's happened in the Philippines, and so um, I decided I, ha- I have to photograph that, and um, I asked my dad to buy me a plane ticket, and the travel agent told me about that you you don't you don't just have to go to the Philippines; you could do go get a for the same price or whatever, get a whole bunch of stops and take your time and go around. From you know, it was called an around the world ticket, mm-hmm. and my best friend's girlfriend at the time had spent some time with her family in India, and she told me that I you just have to go to this place called Benares, and uh, I thought okay. And after having done that in the Philippines, I, I booked it, so I was going like jumping from there to to. Thailand for a couple of days and then Calcutta. And I, I spent a week in Calcutta and then I took a night train to this place, Benares. And I, I couldn't believe what I saw. I, I was just, I was so inspired and uh, constantly having my mind blown by every, every part of life there and um, every part of life and death which was like an everyday thing. Um, it, it was so wild and naked and on fire. And so and I, I felt like you know, just so happy to, to, to wake up every morning in that reality and, and just roam around. And uh, um, again, enter, enter these 
these worlds and lives that were not my own, but I felt so connected with. There was like a, it was super uh, foreign and exotic, obviously, but also very familiar and not, 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 it wasn't exotic in a, I didn't feel like a stranger ever. I felt like I belonged there. I felt like really connected and inspired and fascinated, obviously. And I went there three times between 1993 and 97 and kind of built up this body of work that was published in 1999. And then in 2018, a a very good friend of mine, a photographer called Lorenzo Castore, and I were invited to teach a workshop in Calcutta. Hmm. So 21 years after the last time I'd been to India, I um, was invited to come back. And over the years, especially the last 10 years before that, I started to feel like, um, I wonder what it'd be like to go there again. I hadn't thought about it for a long time. I thought I was done with it. But then I started to think about it again. And and then landing in Calcutta 21 years later, it was like just... I felt like just uh, as if it was yesterday, as if I belonged there, as if I'd never left. And I felt very familiar Mm. and very good. And also what beautiful thing happened was that one of my students in the workshop in Calcutta, his father is a photographer but he also is very, very, and he himself is a photographer in Delhi. And he has a very difficult relationship with his father. And he told me that the only book his father ever gave him was End Time City. Hmm. And other young Indian photographers told me how important that book was for them. And then I, I really have, I hadn't thought about it because I felt like I was so far away from it photographically that it was the product of a really young photographer, you know, and I've lived so much since. So I didn't really consider it, but then I thought, and, but sometimes I would hear complaints like, you know, it's $400 on eBay or whatever. (laughs) And I didn't, but when, when that guy told me about his father giving him that book and other people told me about it's like, you know, impact on them. And, and then there, it, in, in Varanasi, there is this really, really nice um, English language bookshop. And the owner of it has like hoarded 10 copies of it. And um, he told me he was, it was his favorite book about his city. Mm. So I started to think that um, maybe it would be a good idea to republish it. And then... I made between 2018 and actually uh, January 2020, just when the first news was coming from China about this virus, I made three trips, just like I'd made three trips in the 90s. I made three trips, also all of them with my friend Lorenzo, who I told you about. And we we have been working on um, our own India project, but 
separate from that, I would go to Benares and and shoot for the idea of republishing and Time City. And then, yeah, I was um, excitedly accepted by a really great French publisher called Atelier uh, Editions Xavier Barral, named after the founder of the publishing house, who I'd never met, who died, Xavier Barral. But his team continued continued um, to as a partnership to keep his publishing house alive, and they were amazing to work with. And uh, and, and and you know you don't get you don't get like uh, too many second chances in life. So I was really grateful for that. I do want to talk a little bit about, and this isn't about like what camera specifically, because there's a variety of of cameras that you've obviously used to create this work. Those choices obviously are going to affect what the image looks like. But then I look at this book as just a cohesive piece in and of itself. And then I, so I'm exploring from spread to spread and there's clearly um, panoramic. There looks like Holga maybe, um, I'm assuming you were shooting some kind of like, I think it was super eight, maybe. Can you tell me a little bit about not the the decision to, to use one camera over the other, but it, it almost seems to me as a viewer and a photographer that you're, it's like you're absorbing everything, all of this visual information in, in a variety of means. Why, why that way? What led to that? Approach. No, I think I think since since I was young at university, I well, I guess then I did like everybody thirty five millimeter, but like I was pretty intrigued with different formats, and very soon I I always had to carry three formats with me. 35 millimeter square and panoramic different situations. I see in a different ways. Like a, there's a lot of things that I see or I'm confronted with that. I just can't, I can't imagine it in 35 millimeter. So it calls for something else. I think. And super eight came into my life about seven or eight years ago. It's a long story, but I think that it, after some time, um, I needed to find new ways of making pictures because I felt like uh, that I was repeating myself in this very weak way. So formats, like also Polaroid came into my life very late. It's help, Polaroid and Super 8 both have helped me come back to life in a different way come back to photography life in a different way. Like, and I don't know, I just see, I, I see different situations need, need a different camera. I don't know why it's, it's, it's completely subjective, but I've always been like that. It's, it, I work very chaotically, intuitively and chaotically. Mm -hmm. And it's like, my bag is a mess. I don't know. Like it's, everything is in, is about, is just, just about to be broken. And, uh, yeah, it's a it's like a juggling act on very thin ice. That's how it feels. Mm. 
And out of that comes something beautiful sometimes. And a lot of shit. I mean, I just pick when I see myself like uh, if I if I see myself or think of myself working, it's like, yeah, it's very chaotically and out of control. And like, I wish I could wave, you know, trend. I wish I could be Japanese and like, you know, have no un, be perfect and like efficient and everything beautiful and well-made and like elegant, but I'm the opposite. Hmm. I just live in my, it's everything is chaotic. And Yeah. Because I'm, I'm looking at like, there's the images of the seagulls flying around the fishing boat. It's very grainy. That comes from a film. Yeah. I made, I made a, I made a short film about that. It was like five or six mornings on the Ganges river that I shot in super eight. But I also captured a lot of the still images and created this. Uh, actually, I didn't create that um, uh, collage montage. Yeah, I made a pub- I made a publication with a really nice uh, special independent publisher called Void. Void is they 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 publish very beautiful books and um, is this it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So the guy, the, the the designer of that. Um, Zhao, he he came up with that birds thing, and I I tweaked it a little bit, but I wouldn't I would not have come up with that myself. I've made a lot of uh, grids and panels and whatever, but not never that irregular irregularly or yeah. But yeah. actually, that's that's the poster of the book, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. right here, and. Uh... I, yeah. I, I, I pinned a, I, I made a smaller print and stuck it on the wall just as inspiration because I do a lot for my own work. And this is, again, I think that's something that uh, I find uh, inspiring about what you do is that the rejection of uh, a perfect, sharply focused, perfectly exposed, well-composed image or uh, a singular photograph to capture, you know, a, a particular scene versus what you're doing, which is this. Yeah, I can't, I, I, when you said those words, like perfectly composed, sharply focused, it sounded so unattractive. Like, right. Yeah. <laughs> As, I, I, I can't, I can't believe people still like that. I share that 100% that attitude. Why I'm drawn to what you do is because I can tell that I I work in the same mindset and just what you said that like, I can't believe people still like it. Uh, And I think that what has driven me creatively is the rejection of like seeing so much of it and rejecting that straight representation has in a lot of ways liberated me in my image making. But it also, I think brings, and maybe this is the, the lasting influence of your book or that the fact that there was a demand for it, you know, there's so much repetition of like, well, I'm going to go to this place and get my standard photo of the Eiffel tower or whatever it is at night, or like this, everything is so, 
repeatable and uninteresting that it's the work that has, you know, like the grain, the rough edges, the haphazard chaos of what you're describing, taking a super eight, making prints from it, that to me may have appeared as a radical direction, but it's even more valuable now because we're inundated with the opposite of that so much. I never thought about, I think maybe it's even obvious that like one doesn't think about trying to be radical or um, special. It just seems like you want to make things that are true to life. And that's how life is like that. It's not, life is really not well composed. <laughs> Sometimes it's well lit, but it's not <laughs> perfectly sharp and it's not, you know, um, it's not clean life. Like I, 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 I don't speak about these things very well, I think, but I have a good friend who wrote, he wrote the introduction to um, the epilogue from Void. And he wrote a nice uh, an essay about um, from for a previous book called Half Life that was to my sadness still rejected by the his essay was rejected by the publisher. But he wrote something about decayed and damaged images, not as an artistic exercise, but because life is never pristine or experience is never pristine. I don't remember what exactly, but I think when it's not like a, when what you're doing is not a job, when but it's like a, what you really need to do for yourself. And then the, the biggest motivation is to be true. And you're always like, you know, like hacking away at that, like, you're always digging and digging and digging and trying to be more and more true. And then that means, I mean, that necessarily is messy. And, um, because that's, that, that is, that is life. And that is like, um, navigating it, exploring it. You make a lot of mistakes and some of them are beautiful. Really, uh, insightful comments there that I think are at the, the core of using photography as, you know, like I said earlier, this spiritual pursuit, but also this uh, way of making sense of life and the chaos and the dirtiness and the unpredictability of it all is something that I think you're, you're definitely, it's obvious that that's what's going on in your work. Did you come to, I don't want to call it your style, but like your aesthetic, Was were there influences to that? Were you seeing other work, other photographers? How did you arrive at sort of this? To me, you have a very signature aesthetic. I, whatever work of yours I've seen looks like it's part of a, you know, it's all coming from the same person regardless of, you know, where you are shooting or what you're using to shoot. How did, 
were there influences that pushed you into that direction? Of course, all the time. And all the obvious ones, you know, all the ob- all the obvious influences. When I was, uh, yeah, 18, 19, uh, 20, I started to see, you know, the, those like um, photo posh series? Mm-hmm. The, the little black. Yeah, yeah it was actually, po- yeah. And like, actually the two, the two b- books that I studied most, like, uh, intensely, when I was very young and starting photography were published by the same man who published the photo posh series, Robert Del Pierre. And that was the, the two books were um, exiles by Joseph Kudelka and the Americans. And yeah, I was studying like the, I remember going to the library and always like thinking, Oh, it's so smart how he put this picture after this picture. And anyway, I was devouring photography, like when I was very young and the emotional intensity of like Robert Frank or Diane Arbus and Gary Winogrand and William Klein. And, and then like the, the beauty and the, the, the depth of emotion of um, also Sally Mann was a huge influence on me when I was, beginning i think the um, one thing that's always stayed for me constant is the need to not know what's going to come out i i it's just like uh i can't that i think maybe that's why i still haven't done too much with digital because i don't know how to make it mysterious or accidental even if I, 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 there are people who are making such beautiful things with it, friends of mine, but like I'm, a, I'm so addicted to the unpredictable. So the unpredictability of analog photography versus the, like you haven't embraced digital because of the immediacy of that screen on the back that shows you exactly what you've gotten right away or um yeah even i think even if i did do that i wouldn't look at the pictures very soon you know like i i sometimes wait half a year to develop a roll of film and mm. I, I don't think that i would ever like want to see immediately because it would just be such a disappointment you know you're just so excited about something mm-hmm. and then you would see a shitty version of it a, a dead ver- I, I I think that I would be too afraid to look and with like with mo- most of my pictures a certain amount of time has to pass before I like them because I have to it takes me a while to accept them hmm. if they're too soon to the moment that inspired them then they're weaker than the moment that inspired them the the encounter or the experience they're they're just like a failure because Mm -hmm. the what made me want to do it was so strong and they need they need time to like uh not cook but to be accepted that's why like you know you look at contact sheets from years ago and you you, th- you find a lot of things 
that you overlooked because you weren't ready to accept them then. A lot, a lot of it for me in my in my experience, it's that the experience of photographing whatever it is I photographed was so strong emotionally that the picture is just like uh, you know just doesn't live up to it. And even even some of the ones that now I like, you know, a lot when I first saw them. They were disappointments. Hmm. What uh, what changes it then? I mean, aside from the time and the distance, because the, it replaces the experience. Like it, it's it lets you re redefine the experience, and because mem- the memory memory fades and makes room for the picture to take over and replace the memory. And um, I don't know, it has a power of like, of keeping something alive and like, you know, like the, your expectations are so high in the moment of doing it that you can't help but be disappointed when you see the results. Mm. But also your expectations recede and like you, maybe it's not, or maybe it is like, you know, all my life, if somebody, you know, 20 years ago, when I was 30 something, if somebody took a picture of me and showed it to me, I would hate it. I don't mm-hmm. think like, ah, oh, I look horrible. But if I saw that picture now, 20 years later, I I think I would look pretty good. The same as if you take a picture of me now, you bet you should wait like until I'm 75 to show it to me. <laughs> That's I I I mean I, I I understand what you're saying. It's interesting. I mean, it's not it's not the same. But no, 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 no. But one is the, about vanity, and the other is about um, truth. But time and distance from the initial uh, photograph when you first make it, and then you you're removing yourself, allowing a different emotional relationship. you have an emotional relationship to the time and place that you were in that you made the the photograph to begin with, but then you're distancing yourself, not only to allow being so close to it would maybe influence, like you said, how you're, and you put it in a negative context, like it's not good. It takes time for you to like it. If you're shooting, even if you're shooting film, but if you're shooting digitally and you're, let's say you shot and then developed it right away and then you're, 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 damn it, I didn't get what I wanted or this is all crap or I need to go back now and try to remedy this shortcoming. Yeah, because the the reality of what I experienced most of the time is more powerful than what I've captured. And so it's really hard to live up to the, it's really hard for the picture to live up to the reality. Sometimes it, you know, it's, it transcends it and like the banal gets transformed into something much more magical, but maybe that often happens but when I first see it, it's more like the opposite. 
the magical got transformed into something banal and not worthy of the not not matching the emotional intensity that I had when I did it. Mm. Like the the picture is not as good as life, and and then it takes for a while for me to th- think that the picture is as good or better than the life that inspired it. And is and that, that, that that's too simplistic? But no, uh, but is that ultimately? I mean, is that why you do it? Is that the drive to continue to achieve those transcendent, those photographs that transcend the experience? Otherwise, you're, I mean, you're, you're clearly, you're doc, you're, you're, you're making a documentation, some tangible evidence of that experience. You could just as well travel to these places and spend time there and just have it living your head in the moment and have your memories. Is it the drive for that transcendence that is why you're doing it? Why we do it? Yeah. I mean, that's what you're describing is like, you could be a civilian, like, and just go somewhere and like everybody else. And, and, and like, if it's snowing outside and the storm, there's an amazing storm. You should stay home and like be warm, like everybody normal, right? <laughs> but you want to go out and capture the crazy snow. I don't know why, because it's like the because you you just I, I don't know. You got the early on in life, you get the sickness and this addiction and this need to um, hold on to things in that particular way, and to have yeah, to transcend them. And that is maybe what it means when I say it's the only way I can come into contact with a certain life force. I mean, I could imagine that it would it could be replaced by by I don't know what hmm. gardening, <laughs> yoga. I don't know. It's 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 like. You know, I'm not very, it's the only way I know how to come into contact with that. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like something not pure, but something maybe so subjectively more true to me than anything else, and therefore more pleasurable in a deep way, you know. Not in a sugary or whatever way, but like, it's just what makes me the happiest in a deep way. Mm-hmm. People often, like people who are concerned with uh, what, what meditation or uh, transcendence or living a better life or uh, spirituality also, often speak about like, transcending yourself where to the point where there is no self. I never manage that in anything except when I'm photographing. So I think that's what I mean by making me the happiest is it's, it's the only moment when I lose that self, when there is only experience. And that's maybe where you can like, you know, the word pure almost applies. Um, 
I think that speaks to my own uh, perspective on, on why I do what I do, why I use a camera to express myself, how I feel in that, you know, what, what is the, it, that intangible thing that uh, not only what we seek, but what we experience when we're in it. So I think I, I 100% understood what you said and the relevance of it, I think is a perfect endpoint for this conversation. Michael Ackman, thank you so much for taking time out to talk with me today and um, sharing your thoughts on, on life and photography and uh, not only the work that you've produced, but also the, the why we do what we do. So thank you. Thank you very much, Nick. It's um, a real pleasure to speak with you. Thank you. So there you go, folks. My conversation with photographer Michael Ackerman. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. I really want to thank Michael for uh, spending quite a bit of time speaking with me. Um, he patched in all the way from Berlin, Germany. I know with the time difference, it was late into the night when we finished up our conversation, but I really felt like this was one where we probably could have kept going for another hour or two. Um, just a really thoughtful person. And I hope you will check out the links that I'll include in the show notes to Michael's work. I think you'll get a better understanding of how he approaches an environment uh, and captures it uh, with his camera or cameras, as he explained. I really draw a lot of uh, inspiration from Michael's work, uh, especially the fact that you don't have to do things simply, clearly, quickly, digitally. It takes time to really delve in deeply into uh, subject matter oftentimes. But as Michael explained, that time and the time away from the photography changes how you feel about it, how you feel about the work, how you feel about the situations that you found yourself in originally. So I hope that's some of the takeaways from this conversation. As always, I thank you for listening. If you could leave a review or a rating on the platform of your choice, I would really appreciate that. I've been getting a lot of great feedback from listeners and I deeply appreciate each and every one of you. So that's it for this episode. This has been the Right Eye Dominant Podcast. I've been your host, Nick Toro Jr. Until next time, stay well. This podcast has been a production of RightEyeDominant.art. The music for this episode has been brought to you by The Conant Project, Yazar, and The White Plains.